If you're new here this morning, we want to welcome you. We want to just let you know that it's our great honor and privilege that you're here with us to worship this morning. Um, if you're looking for a church home, we hope you might find one here. Um, but if not here, one of the great churches here in Sheridan, and there are several of them, and we acknowledge that we have uh, just the privilege to serve in a greater body of Christ within the community. And so we would just encourage you to be where God um, sends you, wherever he plants you, um, get involved and serve and be a part of that church body. So we're continuing in our study through Second uh, Peter now. We've been through First Peter, and we've just started, uh, Pastor Mike got us started last week um, in, in this. So if you would, you could open your Bibles or turn them on, whatever you do. Um, to 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 12, and we'll get started there. Um, I guess uh, real quick, too, I uh, just want to throw out a couple of things. Uh, one is this. Last night, Chateau de Hog was a great success. I think the, the, the youth group made about $1,400, so that's pretty cool, huh? Also, too, we have a, a meals ministry, and, and, and there's, a, there's kind of a growing need. There's, there's people that are out and sick and some quarantine folks and some different things like that, and there's a lot of folks on that meal train, and I just want to say that it's probably one of the most powerful ministries we have is when somebody is sick or somebody is uh, somehow incapacitated with surgery or has a new little one or whatever that looks like to, to just come beside them and feed them and provide for them. So um, that's a ministry that we do. Um, there is some needs coming up that way. Um, and so if that's something that you have on your heart um, to do, you could get a hold of us here at the, at the church and we could uh, set you up as part of that. And it could look real simple. We can, we can uh, help to get meals different places. Um, you could cook a meal, freeze it, bring it to the church, things like that. But anyway, it's really powerful, good time, good stuff to be feeding people um, when they're struggling. So just a little bump for the meal train. All right, so we we're talking about legacy. I was talking with Joel the other morning, and, and, and when we read through Second uh, Peter here, uh, verse 12 and maybe 13, I can't remember exactly, but, but Joel just said, hey, sounds to me like he's talking about a legacy, and I would totally agree with that, that, that Peter begins by talking this way, begins by saying this. He says, therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present in you. And that's like a green light for a pastor right there, for a preacher, right? That's like just hit the throttle and go, I know you get it, I know you've heard it, but I'm going to keep telling you, I'm going to keep telling you, and I'm going to tell you again. Anyway, he says, I consider it right as long as I'm in this earthly dwelling to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me, and I will also be diligent at, that at any time after my departure, you will be able to call these things to mind. So Peter does, he says, look, even though you know this stuff, I'm gonna tell you anyway, and I'm gonna keep reminding you because the time is short and what we're talking about is important. So Peter just says, look, I know that I'm recognizing that there's a reality that, that I'm actually moving towards the end of my life, that, um, that, that God has, has made clear to Peter that, that, um, that his time is just short. And um, it's a really 
Interesting thing in John chapter 21, Jesus tells Peter even how he's going to leave, that he's going to basically follow him in crucifixion. But Peter is talking out of his heart, and the reason he's talking so much out of his heart is because he has a recognition of the truth that's in him, that, that his death is imminent. And, and he also has a recognition of a truth that's in him that says it's just his earthly dwelling. He knows that there's something beyond this, that there's a bigger picture, and that he's going to be leaving here, and that that is imminent. And this is the truth for each and every one of us, that the reality of it is, is that at some point, we don't know when that's going to be, but that each of us is going to leave here. The reality of it is, is that nobody is going to get out of here alive. And because of that, how then should that begin to shape our lives? If death becomes a tutor that teaches us how to live, then what things are really important What things should we be focusing on? What directions should we be taking? And what legacy should we be leaving to those behind us? As a matter of fact, this is the very thing that moved Jesus in Matthew 28 to give us the Great Commission. It says that Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to follow all that I commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so Jesus, knowing and saying, look, I'm about to leave, um, and I want to impart to you what's really important to me. So if you knew that you were about to, to leave, if you were about to exit, and you were having a conversation with your children, what kind of conversation would you have? What kind of the things would, would you speak about? You wouldn't think about or talk about things that were just ancillary, things that had no real meaning, things that had no importance in their life or in their future. You would begin to talk to them out of your heart about the things that were the most precious, the things that you believed to be the most important for them to get hold of and to begin to live with. And so Peter has done this, and he basically is reminding us. And so to honor Peter and and this whole thing, we're going to go back and we're going to kind of look at some of this stuff. And Pastor Mike went through this this last week, but we're just going to look at it again because Peter is saying, look, uh, we need reminded of this stuff. We need to revisit things. There are are things this this journey isn't just kind of a one and done thing. It's not this thing where we've we've, uh, said yes to Jesus as as Lord, and, and then that's it. We don't need to revisit um, we, we've, we've read through the Bible once in a year. We don't really need to read it again. No, this is a constant um, re, uh, revisiting um, of our faith. And this is where Peter takes us. And this is what he's telling them. I want to remind you of this. I want to remind you of it again. I want to remind you so much of this that when I'm gone and you think of me, this is the very thing that you're going to think of. And he says, for his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence, through these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world on account of lust. And so he's telling us, look, this is is how you do it. This, this This is how you live your life. This is about transformation. Um, just like Matt and Molly were just talking about. This isn't external things. This is about an inward 
change that happens. And then the things that because of that inward change, then there's an outward manifestation of the reality of the change that's happened on the inside of us. And so Peter is reminding us that you have access to a divine nature, not a human nature, not, not an old nature, not the old man. We're not subject to that anymore, that we have been given everything, not most things, not, not a good share of things, but everything that is pertaining to life and to godliness. That God hasn't left us without. He hasn't shortchanged us. He hasn't kind of told us a whole bunch about it, but left out the, the big things. No, it says that we have what we need to live a transformed life. Sometimes we, like these guys were talking, we don't necessarily go about that in the right way, but God has given us this thing and he's given us access to a divine nature, and that's about character development. It's about change. It's about growth. It's about holiness, and the holiness of God is the way out of the patterns of this world, the patterns that we find ourselves stuck in, unable to, to get out of, finding ourselves, man, I just hit that wall again, and I just hit it again, and I thought I'd gotten around that, except now I'm facing it again, and I don't know what to do with this. The divine nature and God's prescription of how to begin to live life and understand who we are, who he is, and what this world is about us is exactly what God is talking to us about. Romans 12, 2, the idea of be no longer conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you might prove what the will of God is, that which is good, pleasing, and perfect. Not that you might even just know it, but that you might prove and demonstrate it to the world around you that God and what he says is right and it's good and it works. So we start with faith. Faith is the cornerstone. It's the basis by which any of this is built. And as a matter of fact, apart from faith, anything that you add to this won't matter. Because it begins with faith, and it begins with a personal relationship with Jesus. That's where we all have to evaluate. We have to start, and we have to say, do I have an authentic, do I have a real uh, abiding relationship with my Savior? I'm not talking about, did I say yes one time at youth group or anything like that, but do I have an, a deep and abiding, ongoing relationship with my Lord and Savior? Have I said yes to Jesus? Have I put the ring on? Have I said, yes, this is who I am, and I'm in relation to you, and I'm in relation to your church, and, and, and you have saved me. Your death on the cross has paid the penalty for my sin, and you are now Lord, King over my life. So we start there, and we can go nowhere without faith that is directed to Christ. But then we add to that virtue. We add to that ethics the idea of virtue and ethics. You see, we're, we're talking about a belief system that is, has, has an ethical standard to it. The reality of Christianity is that, is that there, there is an ethical call to this system. It's part of what is so offensive about Christianity, and certainly what was very offensive in the day and the time of Jesus, was that Jesus began to call people to an ethical standard. And he called people to an ethical standard that was actually above the law. It wasn't just this external thing. God has never been content with just giving us an external law and say, saying, follow it because you have to. God's purpose was to write his law internally in us, right? 
so that it would become our desire, so that our will would begin to match His will. And so we are living under a system of belief that has an ethical standard to it. And virtue is the desire to follow that ethical standard. Now, we'll not do it um, perfectly. We'll struggle in this area. Each of us will, will at times uh, do better or worse at this, but, but it doesn't ever change the ethical standards. Ethics is what ought to be, and we as a Christian people are to continue to aspire to follow that system of ethics, and that will require virtue, and we add to virtue knowledge. This is, it's about uh, growth. It's about a worldview. It's about fundamentally, how do we see the world around us? What do we believe to be true about the world around us, and how much has the world around us infiltrated our system of thought and belief? Do we truly have a biblical worldview? Do you know that uh, statistics show, for whatever they're worth, that only about 5 to 10% of Christians actually have a biblical worldview? Most other people have a secular worldview, and they go to church, and they kind of just tag Jesus onto that. So, so there's an importance. There's a, this, this, again, isn't um, a, a faith system that's about one and done. It's about an ongoing relationship. It's about the pursuit of knowledge. It's about developing our worldview and our understanding of the world around us. Because what we believe fundamentally affects every action that we take on. And so it's important that we are a people who are continually moving towards knowledge. And with that knowledge, we have to have self-control because we are a people who are under an ethical system. We need self-control to be able to attain or aspire to the virtue and to virtuous living called to us under those ethics. The other thing about our belief system that's going to really require self-control is our liberty. Because as Christians, we're not just under this, this, this thing about like, well, here's, here's everything that you shouldn't do. We're actually given much liberty in many areas of things that we should do. But we're cautioned in those areas of liberty to make sure that we never use them in a way or in a manner that would cause someone else to stumble. So there's a real responsibility within even our liberty. So self-control both with our ethics and with the liberty is a really um, a calling. Steadfastness, that we stay steady fast, that we're fastly steady, that we're there, that we're dug in, that, that this is where we're at, that we've drawn a line in the sand, that we've dug down to the rock, and this is what we're living on. It's going to require that we be a people who are steadfast, that we are going to have to persevere, that we are in it to win it. We're going to add to that godliness and what is godliness? Well, godliness really is, is kind of the devout practice of, of our faith. It's about participating in the things that we're called to as a community. And again, Christianity isn't a whole bunch of do's. You got to do this, you got to do this, you got to do this. But at the same time, there are practices that draw us nearer and draw us into the presence of God that deepen our relationships together, that equip us, that is strengthen us as a church, that move us more in line and in direction with what the will of God is. And, and, and so we want to practice our faith. We want to be a disciplined people. The whole idea of being a disciple is to be a disciplined person. And that looks like corporate worship. It looks like a 
it looks like as much as we can. And again, anybody who's, who's struggling or, or, or um, you know, has a, a real need to, to, to not, you know, um, come and fellowship, we get that. We, we're, we're never throwing out any uh, guilt that way. But certainly, um, corporate worship is, is an important thing. It's, it's part of our walk. It's part of what we do. It's part of what strengthens us as a community together that we might go out and be more effective in the world around us. Um, our quiet time, our own personal time with God. It's important that we each and every day make time for God to, to both speak to God and hear from God through his word and, um, and just spend some time being purposeful in that discipleship, to be both in and also discipling someone else. This is how the church grows. This is the prescription that Jesus gave us to grow and to further the church is to make disciples, right? He didn't say go out and make converts. Now, converts are good, but converts need to then turn into disciples. And we, as a people who have been sitting in the church and and maybe sitting in the church for a long time, really need to understand that there's a call to action in our lives that we would actively be participating in the growth of someone else, maybe somebody who's just coming in. And you don't have to be miles in front of somebody. You don't have to be a theologian. You just have to be ahead of somebody and and be willing to, to really just live life with them. Sometimes I think discipleship is not just the impartation of knowledge into somebody else's life. Discipleship is beginning to live life with someone else demonstrating, helping, modeling, um, coming beside them, encouraging them, just being there. It's a whole bigger picture of discipleship than let's just sit down and let me just give you some information. It's about willing to be inconvenienced. It's about willing to, to, uh, to maybe invest in somebody's life even when uh, the ministry's hard or the payback seems very little. We need to study the word. We've got to know what God's word says more and more all the time. We've got to be a people who are consistently studying God's word, prayer, communion with God, just talking to God. Don't get wrapped around the axle about prayer. It's not a bunch of Christianese. It's not all kinds of fancy words. It's simply sitting down and talking to God as though he were your friend because he calls you friend. Communion, we'll practice communion today. Fasting, sometimes there are just times, there are things, and it's not just, it's not just eliminating food from our lives. It's, it's fasting from certain things so that when we think of those things, we're reminded that actually I'm fasting and, and, I, and I connect back with God. But remember, Jesus said when you fast, not if you fast. Baptism, it's, a, it's one, of the, one of the foundational things. It's one of the foundational parts of our growth. If, if, uh, if you haven't been baptized as a believer, you should you should. You should do that. God is calling you to that. Even meditation, as we go about our day, to really be filling ourselves with God's word and and continuing in that as we go about our day, to continually be meeting that and meditating on God's word. Versus Eastern meditation, which is an emptying of oneself, Eastern meditation says that, is that, the, that the way to heaven or nirvana is to, is to extinguish the flame of de- desire, to, to have no desire left in your life. But that's not what God calls us to in the type of meditation we're supposed to be filled. Uh, Christian meditation is a filling of oneself with God's word and, and just kind of ruminating and marinating in God's word as we go about our day. And then we go, um, brotherly affection to add to that, 
We want to love our neighbor as ourselves, right? We want to be actively doing that. And then in general, we're going to add love to cover the whole of that because apart from love, we're nothing but a clanging gong. Our religion has gone bad and we're ineffective in the world around us. So those are the things that Peter says he wants to continue to make mention of, to continue to remind us of, to continue to stir us up in those things. Verse 16, for we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such a declaration as this was made to him by the majestic glory This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this declaration made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So these guys were eyewitnesses. This is an eyewitness report. What what Peter is saying here is that this is real people in real history. This is not nebulous mythology. This isn't like the the Greek pantheon and the Roman pantheons and the the mythology surrounding those, those gods and goddesses where there's just these wild stories that are completely made up. And remember, there's probably accusations that these guys are making up this story um, about God. But Peter, what Peter is saying is that I saw it. I saw it and it changed my life. I saw it. I saw the very things that happened. Pastor Mike mentioned it last week, but one of the very powerful things about our faith and, the, and, and one of the real things about that is that 11 of the 12 of these disciples, um, not, not thinking about uh, uh, um, Judas, thank you, not thinking Judas, but, um, but, but uh, 10 of, of the, the next 11 basically lost their lives as martyrs. The only one that didn't was John, and he was exiled to the island of Potmos, where he received the final revelation of Jesus Christ, uh, our final book in the Bible. But 10 out of the 11 of these guys were eyewitnesses to what had went on. Now, you've got to understand, and we've got to think, Josh McDowell talks about this, but that, but that if they were willing to take this to their death, and they were offered the opportunity to recant on their... On their uh, their testimony and go back on what they had said and go a different direction, and then they would get to live, but they wouldn't do it. They took it to their death, except they were eyewitnesses. So if what they were going to be willing to die for was a lie, it would have been their lie. And 10 out of the 11, none of them ever recanted. John neither. He went to prison over it. But they were willing to do that. And, And so will people die for a lie? They certainly will. As a matter of fact, I think in Islam, people are willing to die for a lie. They strap bombs on themselves. They go into buses and they blow people up and themselves up. Why? Because they believe that that the only access, the only sure way for them to enter into heaven is to die in jihad. And so they're willing to die for that cause. But let me tell you the difference is, is that it's not their lie. And if you know the truth and you believe that, that you, you know, you were there. I'm going to just tell you that you couldn't put 11 people together and let them devise a lie, and come up with a lie, and then start killing them. It would be no time before somebody would be like, hey, I'm out. <laughs> Here's what really happened. 
But nobody did that, and that's a powerful testimony. So Peter is telling us, I was an eyewitness to his majesty. He says, I went to the holy mountain where he was at. I saw him transfigured. I saw his glory. I saw him as he really is, not just in his earthly tent, but here's the Jesus that Peter saw. It's the same one that John saw as he wrote the book of, of, of Revelation. In Revelation uh, chapter 1, verse 12, then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, and if refined in a furnace, and his voice is the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun, shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. This is the Christ that, that Peter got to see on this holy mountain. He got to see the glory of God. And he got to hear this God say, this Father God say, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. This is the second time that this has been said. The first time, Mark 1.11, this was at Jesus' baptism. And after Jesus was baptized, it says he came up out of the waters and a voice came from the heavens and said, you are my beloved son in you. I am well pleased. What a powerful thing. Now, I want you to think about this for just a second. And you may have got this, but this kind of hit me as I was looking at this this week. You see, this is at his baptism. This is at the beginning. This is before any of the works. And you know what he is well pleased in? He is well pleased that this is his beloved son. Not he's perfect. Not he's the savior of the world. Not he's got a great resume. Not he's made the honor roll. Not he holds this position at work. Not this he's got all of these letters behind his name. No, this is my beloved son or daughter in whom I am well pleased. That it just starts apart from works. It's just about identity. It's about who Jesus fundamentally is. And what's pleasing to the Father is that he is his son. And, and that's a powerful parenting thing, I think, for us to think about and to remember, is that we need to make sure that our children know that they are our beloved son or daughter, and in themselves, in who they are, we are well pleased. Not in their actions, not in their accomplishments, not in their academics, not in their careers. And so I think we have to be really careful with that sometimes, and we have to make sure that when we're talking about our kids or our young people, that we're not just throwing out there those works, because we have a real propensity to be drawn towards works, to believe that works are what identify us, that works are what give us identity, that works are what give us worth. But right here, God is saying, he has, he's just my, he's my son, and I'm well pleased. Let's make sure that our kids, our sons, and our daughters understand and know that we are well pleased because they're just who they are. We're, I'm pleased with you, within you. Um, 
And, and you know, I want you to hear that too as a, as a son or a daughter. I want you to understand that if you're in Christ, that you are positionally perfect with the Father. You don't have to earn His favor. You don't have to do all of these amazing things. You don't have to go to the ends of the earth and, and, and save all kinds of people, but you sure have the opportunity to. You see, those things aren't what is pleasing about you to God. He's pleased. He's pleased. So those are great things. All any of those things would be great things for us to do, and there's all kinds of great work and, and, and things that God has planned before the foundations of the world that works, that we would walk in them before we were ever even uh, on this earth, but that's not what's pleasing to him. He's pleasing to you or pleased of you because of you, because you're a creation of his, because he loves you, because he knew you, because he knows you, and he loves you just for who you are. And then out of that, because of that, because we're a child of the King, because this great and powerful and amazing and wondrous and awesome God has proclaimed us to be his sons and daughters, out of that, we should want to go to the ends of the earth. We should want to do the things that he has called us to do, but knowing that that never gives us our identity or our worth, that we already have that, that that's secure. That's not why we're working. We're not working to secure that. We're only working out of this amazing thing that this God of the universe, the one who created all things and holds all things together, gave his life on a cross, allowed himself to be humiliated and crucified so that he might pay the sin debt for you and I and then offer us eternal life because of the forgiveness that he purchased for us there. And, and so just understanding like who this is and uh, you know, who is God and how do I see this? We have to understand and we start by this, from this place that it's, it's about your identity, right? And out of what you do has everything to do, not with your efforts, but where you're rooted in, right? Jesus said, I'm the vine and you're the branches. If you abide in me and I in you, then you will bear much fruit, right? He didn't say if you go out there and dig and do all kinds of stuff and prepare all this, get it all good and get it just right and perfect. No, he said, what you do and what comes out of your life is about where you're positioned. It's about where you're at. It's about where you're rooted. And if you're rooted in the right place, and if you're digging in there and you're, you're, you're growing in your relationship to Christ, then there's, there's nothing that, there's fruit just can't ha not happen. It's going to happen. It's going to come out, not because we will it to come out, but because we're rooted in him and he's the one who brings the fruit. And I think too, just this idea of blessing. Let's make sure we're a people who bless our children. The Bible, you know, has this practice of a, of a parent, of a father blessing their children, you know? And let's make sure this is this picture of this father that says, I am well pleased in you, you know? And then at the end of it, I'm well pleased with you, he says in this other one. And so I'm pleased because of who you are. And then maybe later on down the road, we tell them, you know what? I'm so pleased with the things about you and who you've been and how you've lived your life. Verse 19, and so we have the prophetic word made more sure 
to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture becomes a matter of someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. And so basically he also says, look, we were eyewitnesses. We saw it. It affected our lives. It changed our lives. Not only did that, but we saw the reality and we understood the reality and we saw the fulfillment of the prophetic word out of Scripture as it came alive, as it came, and, it, and, and, and we saw the Messiah for who he was. And so next week, we're actually going to start to deal with the idea more of prophecy and some of that and what does that look like and what does that mean for us today and stuff. But we want to just focus on this idea that God's word, his prophetic word is proof, really, that the Bible comes from outside of space and time. It's proof that says, because it rightly predicted events before they came to be, that this Bible that we're looking at had to have come from somebody who had a perspective that we did not have. So um, let's just be a people. Let's, let's consider um, these things, and let's reconsider these things again. Let's fundamentally plug in to these principles, these ways, these standards, these ethics, uh, this knowledge, live in self-control, let's persevere, um, let's practice our faith, let's love our neighbors, and let's just basically have love be the defining, uh, the defining fuel in the lives that we live. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you, Jesus, that you came on our behalf. We thank you that you know us and that you love us. We thank you that, that if we are in Christ, that you are pleased with us, that we're not trying to earn your approval, that we have it, and that we have it because we're positionally um, in you and you are in us. And so, Lord, may we be a people who live out of that place. May we do the things that we do, not because we're trying to earn approval or we're trying to be great people, but because of the great thing that you've done for us. May we just live our lives knowing that this is the purpose. If, if ultimately we are all going to lay these earthly tents down, then that means that there's, uh, there's things that are more meaningful to live for than other things. And, and, and some of those things are fine and good, but help us, Lord, to just keep them in their proper perspective. Help us to, to live our lives for what's truly important. Help us to have an eternal perspective on the world around us and, and the time that has been given to us. Lord, let us spend our lives on something that's valuable and, and that benefits your kingdom. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.